you're going to do a murder. How are you going to do it? That's the fascinating part. How are you going to do it? I didn't get your name. Mrs. Cunningham. Mrs. Cunningham. How are you going to do it? Well, I suppose I'll have to get a gun from somewhere. Oh, no, Mrs. Cunningham. Bang, bang, bang all over the place. Blood everywhere. How about a little poison? Oh, that's better. That's better, Mrs. Uh, Anderson. Oh, that's better, Mrs. Anderson. But you see, Mrs. Cunningham's in a dreadful hurry. Poison could take anywhere from 10 to 12 weeks if poor Mr. Cunningham is going to die from natural causes. <laughs> you know, I read of a case once. I think it would be a wonderful idea. I can take him out in the car, and when we get to a very lonely spot, knock him on the head with a hammer, pour gasoline over him and over the car, and set the whole thing ablaze. <laughs> Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And welcome to episode 52. 52. We are inching closer to the halfway point here. Yeah. Some might say we're two weeks away from it. Some might say that. I mean, unless we decide to do like a special episode or something in the middle there. Which I don't think we have anything on the docket for that. No, no. I so think in two weeks. I think we're ready. We'll officially say in two weeks. Yeah. Episode 50. Next week's the halfway point. Part one of episode. Technically. Maybe part one of episode 50. We'll have to see how that conversation goes. Next week's like goes. the halfway point. Oh, because we did that episode well, zero. Well, no, 51 is halfway to 50 to 1. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, there's 50 sure. films. Yeah. Unfortunately, guys, we're not a math podcast, as you can see. No, no, we, um, we're we not so good at math. But well, no, I'm pretty good at math. Meh. My job involves You make lots of obscure math forensic, references. Forensic accounting. What forensic accounting are you doing at your jobs? None. Yeah. I say I'm not good at math. All right, um, let's drink beer. Um, so this, we're, we're going to run a little bit of a gimmick, although it's only like really a gimmick for me. Um, over the course of July, I ended up with a whole bunch of weird beer in my refrigerator. So what happened was that he, Tom just couldn't stop buying beer for the podcast. And I kept going, no, Tom, we're not drinking this month. He's like, like, I can't help myself. But I didn't drink any of it. I just, just, just ended up in his just fridge. kept it. No, a bunch of tofu and beer. Yeah, tofu. No, we actually don't eat a lot of tofu. And they don't really like it. Soy, just beans, bean, and just beans. beer. Just beans and greens, man. I like beans. I have a lot of beans in my thing. Beans got and some greens. dark red kidney beans. Got some cannelli beans. Can yeah. Cannella can, can, bean. Whatever. Cannellini. Yep. We like the pinto beans. We're, we're big fans of the pinto I don't call beans. chickpeas beans. I don't think they are. Are it's they? Just, we got to get off of this topic before you get yourself into trouble. Before the chickpea lobby comes down on you. <laughs> oh, no. You can't call them. Maybe you can't call them chickpeas put, somewhere. put my name on a tombstone. Um, so, yeah. I, through various you, Mitch McConnell. Pa- through various parties, um, you know, I, I attended. I was able to abscond certain beers. I bought beers for parties that I didn't go to. I, I went on a trip to uh, upstate New York, and I got some Albany beer that we're going we're gonna to save maybe for the, for the 50. I don't know. Oh. I don't know yet. I'm not sure. Does it come with a little cork um, like champagne? No, yeah, no, but it's just really tasty. Or maybe I'll save the shiny beer with the Golden Boss label for the 50. I don't know. That's, that's sour. I prefer to drink them all. 
<laughs> we will drink them all because we got to get them out of the fridge. Um, but the first we're going to do is uh, Front Porch Brewing. They are out of Wallingford. Wallingford, yes. I always get the Waterbury. I didn't even look this up because I know where it is. Front Porch Brewing, famous for their finger guns, their ghost semen beer. Yeah, which we already have. Tom like to call it a lovely, lovely sour IPA. Uh, they do a lot of really solid sours. Mm-hmm. But this one, Tom, is a... It's a double uh, India Pale Ale um, brewed with lactose, India topped pale. with mosaic Who India and pale ale? Simcoe. So it says on the thing. Nobody says India Pale Ale. But it ale. says double India Pale Ale. I understand that, but naturally you're just supposed to I'm reduce I'm just that reading IPA. it. Double India Pale Ale. Alcohol, 8%. You know, in this odd couple, you're, you're the water math out. It's good. He's the best one. Oh, jeez. Just drink this beer. Yeah, I loved Walter Matthau and my fellow Americans. He wasn't in it because he was dead. I think he was dead by that point. I thought he was in it. No, that was no, James Garner. James Garner. Ooh. It smells... Smell it, smell it really quick. It smells like a brewery floor. Mm, it does. Which I... It's not front porch brewing a criticism. I love the smell of... So it's a malt. It's a malt-heavy smell. It's... It's, I think it tastes good. It, What's okay. in the, what is in the way? Do you find that there's something it's the lactose, the lactose that's, the that's like in the way? Because it's used for a mouthfeel, I think. It's used for a mouthfeel kind of like coat. Yeah. To kind of like let... Because it's, it's a hoppy beer at the back end. You can tell it's, yeah. it's definitely a hoppy beer. But it's I'm not, not getting any of that hop flavor up front. It's, the, it's, it's like, it's like, like the wall. lactose kind of like... Yeah. Lactose sugars kind of cover that hop um, to kind of make it a smoother experience. Mm. And... You know, I really I enjoy this. I enjoy the mouthfeel, but I kind of I kind of wish there was no lactose in it. it I kind of t- yeah. I kind of want this to be a hop bomb. Me too. Oh god, I can't believe I said hop bomb. Hop bomb. We should have a sound effect for that. <laughs> what do hops sound like when they fall on? You know, they sound like villages hops. and stuff. Um, but yeah, so it's good, but it's it's. Got a, it's got a thing. Yeah, no, not, I, I not, enjoy uh, it. It does not taste like an eight percent. It's a dangerous beer, I'd say. This is this is a danger beer. The only reason it's I wouldn't say that it's dangerous because it's heavy. It tastes uh, heavy. Yeah, yeah, it's heavy. So it's not making me. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna, gonna get in your gut. Rip through this thing. I don't need anything. Any extra well, things in my. We're gut. gonna shotgun the next one. So. Is that in reference to something? Oh no, that just you ripping through a beer. You would shotgun a beer. Well, that was a let's, Baker Mayfield reference. Let's talk about. Let's talk about the movie of the week. <laughs> Um, this is a film you were able to see in theaters. We referenced this about three weeks, four weeks ago or so. Yeah. Uh, that I was really into seeing it. Very excited. It was Criterion, our local, what's as close to an art, art house, house. year. I mean, they also will play Hobbs and Shaw, but you know, they save five, scre- four screens for smaller films. Um, usually plays their smaller movies for two weeks. Maybe something like Vox Lux, I think, was there for two weeks, and that had two people in it. Well, we're going to hope that Farewell goes for three weeks, because well, Farewell I don't know got if I'm going to... Farewell got a big release. Yeah. So, like, it got a 900 screen release, so I think it'll at least be there for two or three weeks. Or, at the very least, it'll be, uh, it'll be a reverse situation. Um, but this film was only there for a week, and uh, I missed it. And then it was at Cine 1234, our other art house theater, which will just only play Pavarotti on its one screen for the next and seven years. They played Palms for like two months. Which one's Palms? That Diane Keaton old lady cheerleader movie? Well, I don't remember that. Oh, Palm, P-O-M. Yeah. I don't, still don't remember that movie. I didn't, I mean, I, I said it like see I, it. I said it like it was a suddenly like, uh, oh, I understand what you're saying moment. Yeah. But nope, I just, 
understood the word you were saying. Still don't know the movie. But I just love I love how these movie theaters work. They get the souvenir for a week and palms for two months. Awesome. Oh, by the way, the film we're talking about is uh, Johan. Ah, oh, damn New it. movie, The Souvenir. We can all be sincere, but um, what's it all for? So I'm trying to work out where you two tessellate here. How, what, why, when. Can you lend me a couple of quid? Yeah, sure. Love me. Can I borrow some money? Please. More money? Yes. Oh. You're too nice. You need to properly get aggressive. Don't lie, Anthony. If you don't want to know, I do then want don't to ask. Stop torturing yourself. I'm not Stop talking. inviting me to torture you. Anthony, you stole my stuff. That's exactly how you make me feel. You're lost, and you'll always be lost. In the souvenir, Julie plays a young film school student who is uh, fast at work on her new project. She meets Anthony, who is a well-to-do, very Mm -hmm. well-put-together man who works in the foreign office uh the film takes place in 1984 as you can see from the libyan hostage crisis in britain mm-hmm. um which would spill over to california a year later you know and back to the, and well, back to the future slamming your mic because you're so excited about that joke bow, 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 bow. uh a slow but intense terse romance develops um you know packed full of emotional terrorism uh but very british emotional terrorism exactly um it is slowly realizes uh realized that anthony as he borrows money from her um as he stages a break-in um has a considerable heroin problem and the relationship kind of goes down into the deep depths of this heroin uh, addiction. Uh, eventually, Anthony leaves, uh, basically kicked out by Julie, who's to this point been a very meek kind of kind of woman, a woman who allows the other people to kind of step over her. Uh, or you know, she's she's a very um, passive aggressive. She's also been very naive. Passive, passive. Yeah, uh, like she didn't even realize he was uh, a junkie until they were having a dinner party with his friend and. And it's and shown. He was like, "Whoa! How do you, how do you two get together? Like, how do you two make sense? Like you and like this heroin addict." And she's just kind of like, "Hmm." And you know, during one of their first meetings, there's track marks yeah. on his arm. Um, he leaves. He eventually comes back clean, uh, and he just uh, dies from a heroin overdose. It happens. And she makes. Uh, she then turns her project into something that's a little closer. As the film, her earlier project had been a little more distant, a little less emotional, a little less connected to her. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the project transitions into something that is a little little closer to her heart. Uh, Joanna Hogg said this is a semi-autobiographical tale. Which um, you wouldn't be able to tell from like all the reviews, which have essentially said, like, Joanna Hogg made a story about her exact life. Yeah. And it's just like, well... She said, she said it was semi-autobiographical, yeah. not... Like the very problematic, weird Richard Brody review where he essentially criticizes her for not making more of her life. He was like, I was there. 
No, he didn't say that, but he essentially just Richard said, Brody like, was like, excuse me, I didn't die. I use I, heroin I well now. I just grew a beard. And just now I put it's the like a societal needle death in, in the between 80s. my toes so people can't see. Well, That's Richard, right. I don't think we can say that Richard Brody does heroin. <laughs> we do not think Richard Brody does heroin. We don't. I mean, we can't say he doesn't. We, we are don't not think he accusing does. Richard Brody no, of no, no, doing no, heroin. Right, right, okay. Regardless, he does great reviews. Maybe this was a weird one. I love his, I, I still love it. I still love it, but it's just a little wrong. But So you saw this film first. So yeah. So you've been able to kind of let this digest for the months and kind of seep into the, the Tom veins, the, the <laughs> nerves of film. Tom nerves. Um, do you want to know what I think? Now? Uh, no, I just want you to give a, another plot description. <laughs> There's a secondary plot, which probably hasn't even touched on. Um yeah, I don't know. It's funny because it's it kind of comes back to me occasionally. And um, I guess when I'm not expecting it, some of the shots, it's really, it's oh, it's overly well composed. It's a weird first watch. So that's why I was kind of interested to know what you thought. Because while you're watching it, and I've read a bunch of like, you know, um, product reviews on Amazon. Like now that it's now that it's available digitally, like one star reviews essentially saying like, this is the worst movie ever. Nothing happens. Do not waste your money on this movie. And for a little bit of the movie, you're kind of right. You're just kind of sitting there wondering what the hell is, like, what is the point of this? Like, what is going on? Where are we supposed to be going? Um, And it really isn't until it wasn't, and I liked it. I mean, you know, I thought, I think Joanna Hogg does a really amazing thing here. It's very, it's very literate. Um, It's very trusting that the, she trusts that the, the film goer is going to be able to pull certain things together without her having to kind of tell them to you expressly. So there's all these moments where they're just showing like the English countryside and you get, um, you get uh, the Julie like narration of, I guess she's reading you would, it sounds like she's reading a letter. Um, Those just kind of like fall in and and then you're out like they spend a lot of time in this really tiny apartment and all the rooms are really square and the window's always in the center of the room but it also has these mirrors and there's this the kitchen's like kind of off it and uh, off the, this living room space and it kind of acts to bisect the space almost like you're watching like a dual camera thing but you're not they're just they're in the same space it's just different spaces um there's a lot of that stuff going on it's very i don't want to say it's obviously this and columbus have nothing to do with each other but um, there's a lot of that Columbus-y type um, symbolism going on with a lot of the context that she places these people in because the characters in and of themselves aren't doing or saying a whole lot. Um, so you have to draw... You know, there's like an emotional symbolism, I think, going on with all of this stuff. I honestly didn't really pick up on most of it until I was we were most of the way through with the movie. Um, or until she has that conversation with... Um, the film school people about why she wants to go to film school and talking about how she doesn't want to live her whole life kind of uh, locked up in this world of privilege that she's got. Like they kind of, she takes a little criticism for wanting to make that film about the dock workers. Like it's almost like a cultural appropriation thing. Um, I think it's, it's really, it's really well done. But I worry that it's almost too slight in a lot of spaces to have like the lasting impact that I think it should have. Um, even though I think everyone's really good in it, 
uh, you know, um, Honor Swinton Byrne is is excellent. Tom Burke is is really good. Tilda Swinton is fine. She's doing Tilda Swinton things. I love when reviews single out Tilda Swinton's performance. Like, oh, it's Tilda Swinton at her best. Like, it's Tilda Swinton at her Tilda Swintoniest. Yeah. Which is all the time. You know what I mean? I don't think she just give. She doesn't phone in performances ever. Um. What is, so I mean, but there's the opposite takes. So what do you think, having just seen it? Like, how does your feelings relate to my feelings? Uh, this is the best movie of the year, easily for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it it does a nice blend of direct cinema and observational cinema. Um, it, it, it at moments does a cinema verite sort of style. Um, it's really reminiscent of some of the smaller kind of like Fellini films, like Amarond or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, like it has a closeness. Uh, it it has a lot of forced perspective. That's well, they, always very she center. does leave you in that like she just you're in that room with them. Yeah, you're but, never you're like enclosed in. But so. what's nice is 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 the way that she uses that mise en scene in, in in the composition early on is you know you know very exact and very purposeful. Like when he's first showing her uh, the picture of the souvenir, mm-hmm. you know, when he takes her to actually see it, yeah, and you have that you know very controlled rule of thirds there, you know, mm-hmm. to frame them coming into the room. It has that. That uh, that very stylized kind of strict control, um, and then when he's having, you know, his his kind of like breakdown when he's coming over through like the withdrawal effects, like the camera's down low, mm-hmm. it's off centered, it's it's a little, you know, it's the first time you're really getting something that kind of feels like it's in a, a new kind of perspective, mm-hmm. uh, not a new perspective, but it's kind of like in, it's it's not. You know, it's not a closer medium shot uh, when when you're in that kind of room. It's always it's always been you know you're getting a fuller image of the body, mm-hmm. um, and that works from a visual standpoint. I, this is this is 100 carried by the story, though, and the performances. I can't say See, anything I, about yeah. For me, I can't say. I mean, it's it's such an interesting story, um, and it's such a solidly constructed screenplay mm-hmm. in the fact that. You know, I, I see this like you see the hallmarks of emotional abuse from the word go. From yeah, I don't know. Anthony. I don't know if I agree with you. Yeah, but there, there's like these little kind of. Um, I definitely see the. I, I definitely see the the cliched, and I don't mean cliched in a bad way. I just mean cliched in stereotypical, in a stereotypical way, like uh, like heroin drug addict things. You know what I mean? Like that he does, like with the stealing and with the lying and with the borrowing money. And, oh, absolutely. But there's there's. There's parts, and I, I wish I could remember some of the lines, where earlier on, before you even see the track marks, he says, you know, something like calling her fragile, mm-hmm. and like, you know what that means, or even like, what's it even mean to be like sincere? Like, none of these things seem to demean her. There's no intent to like push her to be a better self. It's more to facilitate her position and reestablish early on um, with her. Um, her other flat, her earlier flatmate. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget his name. Can't remember his name either. Uh, you know that. You know they talk. She's talking to her friend about rent. You know, like oh, your her girlfriend's always over. You know, you charge them rent or mm-hmm. something. And, and Julie's very reserved, very like, no, it's fine. Yeah. And Anthony does. You know, and that, that script and Tom Burke and I think Tom Burke and Honor Swinton Burn are kind of like near the top of my list right now for in terms of performances. Mm-hmm. Um, just does this exceptional job of, of seeing that fragility and seeing that kind of meekness and, and, and that script and the way he does it with offhandedness just buries it into himself. He, he has, he's 
to me, it's, it's, it's definitely, there's an intent to, to use her from the early point of time. Yeah, but I don't know if it's for money. There's a weird emotional symbiosis going on I think, I think on it's, a, it's an emotional vampirism. I actually think it's... I don't think it's... So the thing but I was left with... it slowly transitions, yeah. I, the thing I was left with... with um, when I walked to the theater was that... I don't know if it's an... I thought it was an emotional vampirism, but I actually think it's a narrative vampirism. Because she talks the whole time about how... And he, you know, he talks about it too, about how she's kind of lived her life back into a corner. You know what I mean? And she, it's almost like she's... Admitting like she's backed herself into a corner, her weird parents have backed her into a corner with you know their politics, but also their their rules and you know when she can have money and that she kind of almost seems to have to beg for it, even though they seem to have a lot of it. She's got to like justify her her claims. If only some, if only she had met somebody in that Venice train to take care of the problem. That's 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 true. A tennis player, I don't know. Maybe somewhere in. Two-tone shoes or something. Oh, oh you, yeah. You don't want to make meet the guy wearing two-tone shoes, but he'll take care of it for you. Um, well, no, I think I think there's there's and you'll you'll learn as we go through this list. I am a fan of relationship dynamics in films where there is a, I don't want to say a power struggle, but there is definitely a power struggle here. But there is a paternal maternalistic kind of thing so, going on, here, and there's definitely like a back and forth. Like Anthony establishes himself, clearly has the 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 emotional mature provider of Julie. Julie he treats Julie still like a child, um, and there's a transition as he slowly kind of like opens up and truly starts to fall. I mean, even like going down to like the first thing he brings her from Paris is like that lingerie. Mm-hmm. To me, strikes me as like a, a, a ownership, you know. Um, but then as he kind of like transitions down into his disease. Um, and then she kind of realizes and takes kind of control of that. You know, there is a, a that power shift. See, but that's the thing. I, I don't know if there is. I'm. I think what I'm saying is that, like, what I perceive, what you might perceive as a power shift, I think may be a power shift. But I also think it's not power necess- shift. Maybe the wrong word. No, no. But I think it's. I think it's. It's there. But I also think she's. It's not like she's not getting anything out of it. So what I was saying is that she talks the whole time about being, kind of living her life in this very squared off way. Mm. The idea of the souvenir, you know what I mean? Like the thing that you're going to take with you. The thing that she's going to take with you is that she's no longer just lived this very cloistered life in this very square apartment with these, like not telling these people that want to pay rent, that that are taking advantage of her, that, that they're taking advantage of her. She now has um, loved deeply. She's now lost more intensely than you can ever lose. She's now experienced like this real human, like the, de- the real... Uh, the real emotional degradation that comes with being uh, being one and being associated with like a drug addict you know what i mean there's a there's a a dual parasitic relationship going on oh, exactly. where they're both like feeding off each other and he gets some money and she almost gets like street cred and maybe not not street cred in the sense that like there's nobody she doesn't care what anybody else thinks of her she cares deeply what she thinks about herself though and as as up to a certain point in this movie, she's only lived like a certain kind of life, and this allows her to kind of live that other kind of life. That and, and I, I think, think is I think the that's... taking ownership of. That's her taking ownership of it. You know what I mean? Where she gets to a certain point, and now the life is not the. This life is hers now. You know oh, what I mean? I agree, and I think I think one of my favorite scenes is um, just just to exemplify that point. And, and like, there's so many moments of just like quiet. 
narrative in this. When she's kind of laying on the bed with the new partner, like mm-hmm. the new partner is standing in front of her, and she's you know has control, like she's kind of spread across the bed. You know, she's wearing that that like gown that's kind of slightly open. You mm-hmm. only see her from you know upper chest up. You don't see any nudity or whatnot from her. And that young man kind of like walks in and just disrobes in front of her while mm-hmm. she's kind of like doing that kind of coyish smile. You know, you get full nudity for right, right, full right. vulnerability. So there is that shift from her, her gaining, you know, that's what she kind of gained from it is the ability now to, to take a moment, take control of that moment. And that's mm-hmm. what I really love about this movie is, is it is a film that's going to be, that would typically be so dialogue driven, doesn't necessarily need to use dialogue. It is, it's, it's slight in its presentation. You know, you mostly stay contained within her apartment and um, within the film school, you know, you get a couple scenes where they go to the parents, both parents' houses uh-huh. or parties or whatnot, but mostly it's contained within these two shots. Um, but, you know, with how minuscule that is, it still does so much narrative power in just the visuals itself. You know, the entire point of when Julie's kind of narrating the letters, that kind of work has almost a transition in emotion. Um showing that kind of like countryside it's like the, that, oh, it's kind of open very up. low third yeah. and then in the end kind of like opens up mm-hmm. um kind of off center you know well, not, not she so walk, perfectly framed she out. walks out that door yeah you know and it's all dark and there's just this like what the kind of the scene we've been seeing and then just kind of the whole thing and, opens up and all that's kind of like her transitioning into that next part mm-hmm. you know which is gonna be the souvenir part two yeah <laughs> in theaters next year apparently Oh, is that true? Or just started production already. So. Which I'm, which I'm cool with. I mean, there is a there is a, a strict tradition oh, I'm, of. I'm thumbs up for it. I'm sad Robert Pattinson can't be in it. I think Robert Pattinson kind of like eat the shit out of a Joanna Hogg movie. Has he? He hasn't been in a Joanna Hogg movie before, right? No, Tom before? Hiddleston has though. Yeah, well, Tom Hiddleston's been in a lot. I know that, right? So when he eats the shit out of things, so. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's. It's definitely a, it's a very interesting movie and it hasn't really left me. I think I just it's not This might be my high life for me in that it's it's speaking to me a lot and it's something I want to keep But do you want to punch somebody because you love the souvenirs so much? Because I literally want to punch strangers. No, I kind of want to grab them by the shoulders though and be like why don't you get this? And, and then make that and then like give them like schoolwork but then about people, other films to watch. That sounds fun. Like watch these other films and come back that you don't like this. Yeah, no, I don't know. It's that's <laughs> like the two. That's funny. The two films I've really loved this year require some sort of degree of going outside and, and watching other things or reading other things. You know, High Flying Bird demands you read a book to get it, and and this I think this I think kind of well doesn't demands yeah. kind of like a fuller, not like fuller. Because it's I, I wish I could name I movies off the top. You of know my what head, I feel like it just it demands an open. It's like a really difficult novel, and I've just been reading all these craft books for school, and it's it's a, like a really difficult novel in the sense that like she's just like scrapbooking, gonna, yeah, scrapbooking, yeah, it's crafting, yeah. <laughs> um, it's she they're gonna she's gonna show you things, and she's not gonna tell you anything. She's just gonna let these kind of I think, and that was Richard Brody's comment is that like there's not enough emotion here to carry a movie that is carried essentially by its emotions. That's is it trying not to tell that? its story. Until the Swinton gets the news from Barbara that Anthony's dead, like yeah. she carries 
all of that on her face. I think it is. And then when she says it to Honor, and she just says the worst. She doesn't like, and it takes another like four to five minutes to get to her to describe what happened to right. Anthony. That works a lot because you know he's dead. You know how he died. You know, you just inherently know that. Mm-hmm. I, it's just, it's, I think it works fine. Yeah. Um, What's I, great about that, too, is you see, you know, Rosalind crying, like, the night of Anthony's death, and, and Julie is the one that comforts her. Mm-hmm. You know, just that, that shift. So much of those shifts in dynamics is so great. Yeah, I think the other thing, I mean, the, is attached to that was the idea that, like, we don't get enough of any of these scenes. Like, that there's inherently going to be more things happening like after Joanna Hogg says cut, like from these scenes, um, we just don't get to see any of it. But if it's a if it's a mem if it's a memoir, like everyone says it is, and it's a kind of remembrance, then it's it is a kind of put together thing. You know what I mean? Like she's it, these are the souvenirs. You know what I, I mean? This, these are the memories. Tom calls us the the call me by your name paradigm. It's but it isn't. You just made that up. No, call you me but- by your name. No, but you said that calling by your name's a remembrance, and you no, said you people. that's what, you said it was remembrance, I and that. I said it wasn't. No. This is why I call the call me by your name paradigm. Yeah, um, but I'm only saying it from the perspective that we know we know that it's it's a memoir. Everyone says it's a memoir, but I also think it's stacked up. Even if it's not a memoir from Joanna Hogg's perspective, it might be a memoir from. Julie's perspective in the way that these things are kind of stacked up. It's a little out of order. It's almost like a mixed media type thing, you know what I mean? With um, some voiceover narration that has no real, with the letters, that has no specific context to anything. Like you don't know it's a letter when she's reading it. It just sounds like a letter. Yeah, she says like I was born in 1980 and you don't really, you can't really connect that to what character that would be. Yeah, you don't really know. There's all these, there's, at least I couldn't. There's the shots and there's all these different very squared off shots that almost seem to serve as like portraiture, like you said, scrapbook before, like kidding, but it almost does seem no, like this was actually intent. It almost seems like I was leading you. It, it is, you know, it's almost kind of like a lesson in scrapbooking in the sense that like, I'm going to stick a picture of myself making this really complex face right here. And then I'm going to write a blurb about why my face looks like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's it's it's interesting. It's 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 profoundly interesting, and it probably is going to end up on my top ten because I don't think she didn't do anything wrong, which I think is fascinating too. Like I think everything works. Yeah, I just I'm not sure you know me, you how know me in, you know me in, in perfectly knit cinema. I'm just yeah, like, I I'm it. just not sure how it. Um, that's tight. I'm not too. sure where it gets. It's not getting anywhere very specific for me. It's just kind of exists in its perfection. Um, and I'm happy to have it. I'm happy to have seen it. It's just not. It's not digging in. I don't know how people could call this dull, though. You said that like, a lot of the one star reviews have called it dull. This is such a tight film to me. But if it you're not like used to hour. watching something like this, it's you know it's tough. Well, watch other movies. Watch more movies, and then you'll be like, oh, I get it. I don't know. What also, to tell like you. you get to see like Andre Swinton Byrne and, and like Tom Burke just fucking destroying a movie. Like they're so good. Well, I, and so that's another thing too is that she's. Twenty-one I think people. That's cri- ridiculous. I think some of the reviews have been critical of this is her of her also. Movie? I don't know. Like it was her first, first movie, first starring. Role, yeah, for sure. Um, Why? She's fucking amazing. Well, that's in what this. I think too. I think she's like, and he is also, but he's got like the meteor part. Um, yeah, and she doesn't. She's got. I think she's she, got like. I think she's really anchors the shit out of this. And that's movie. hard. It's like like Tom Burke. I don't want to say has the easy job, but it's it's the easier job to just kind of like. 
be the like you said the meteor. Yeah. Be, create that crater. She's got to fucking well. There's a she's got to provide the yeah. framework for the city that gets. There's a by di- the meteor. there is a DiCaprio Tom Hardy like thing going on here where she's if she's doesn't work as well as she does the movie really suffers. But you could get any guy to come in here and act like a junkie for like an hour and a half. You know what I mean? But he. Jason Statham. He doesn't. Yeah, that'd be good too. That'd actually bring <laughs> up more questions. Vinny Jones. <laughs> Kevin Hart. Yeah, that's good. Kevin James. Oh, man. <laughs> but no, she, she. I mean, and that's the thing. Everything she does is, is, is minute. She does a, so much facial acting. Yeah, I so think much she's really acting. excellent. I actually, it was a bummer when she kind of wasn't the focal point, like, on film. Yeah. Like when she wasn't. When you just didn't get to like look at her and watch her kind of process, which is great. I mean, I love watching people process. So I don't know. Yeah, it's it's such a real. It's a, it's a lesson just in it's pure, an excellent like, realism movie. too. Yeah, but. it's 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 um, it's very well done, and I'm happy. I feel like I'm slowly convincing you, like you slowly convinced me on highlight. No, 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 because no, I like it. I, I mean, feel like was, I'm more strongly trying to get you, make on, you connect. It was already on my list. I'm trying to give. I'm trying to get the emotional hook. But in you there. don't have to. Yeah, that's it's it's. I've I've been living with it for three months. No, it's already like it went right on my list, like of of movie of the year, uh, like on my top ten candidate. There's, there's only four movies on that list now, so it's High Flying Bird on there. No, it's definitely not. You like High Flying Bird. I do, but it's definitely not going to be one of the best. I mean, the trailer for The Lighthouse is going to be on that list. Yeah. Even if The Lighthouse never comes out, the trailer is better than High Flying Bird. Let's see. How long have we been in this lighthouse? Five months? Two days? Oh, man. Then there's a squid. Defoe's gonna get nom- Defoe's gonna get nominated for that again and lose again, and I'm just gonna be like, no. But he's gonna lose to DiCaprio for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so we'll be all be okay with that. <laughs> Still haven't seen it, guys. I'm a real cinephile. We should say not that we need it's- to have this conversation on audio, but we should save that for fifty. You have until two weeks from now to see it. Can I, we can save this on audio, but I don't know what's going on. I feel over Tarantino and it's it's weird. I felt I, that, I feel that way too. I saw it and I love it and I I'm still sure I'm going to love way. it. Just reading yeah. like the reviews have have compared it to like Inherent Vice and, and like Lebowski and, and like it's the sense of a theme. But like Hateful Eight and Glorious Bastards and no Hateful Eight and Glorious Bastards were just such struggles for me. Mm-hmm. I me like, too. I like Django Unchained. Like I didn't like it at first. I came back to it. and I was like, "This is fun." It yeah. was just fun to me. Mm-hmm. But those two are such struggles and death proofed into a lot that I'm just like, "Man, you're you're striking out a lot." And this is hard. But I'm, I'll watch it. Yeah, because I'm sure I'm going to enjoy it. I'm actually glad I'm going into this thinking. I'm actually I'm pretty much thinking I'm going to hate it. So I'm excited to go into it when I, mean, I have a day. Open. I'm excited because if you do hate it, if it you in fact do hate it, it's going to be an awesome conversation. Yeah, and I will understand all of the reasons that you hate it. But I just I will also say like it was the funniest well, movie I've reason, seen. Why is it my reason is this movie didn't have enough Jonah Hill? I mean, or like what can I say well, about that? To be fair, like Django Unchained had Jonah Hill, Hateful Eight had Channing Tatum. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood probably doesn't have Ice Cube. It finished Twenty One Jump Street, Trilly. It definitely doesn't Trilly, have Ice Trilly. Cube in it. But Although imagine, that would have been pretty good. Imagine if it did. It would have been a better movie if, if Leonardo DiCaprio was just like, "That's my stunt double." It was just Ice Cube. Who's that man? It's Ice Cube. He hasn't been born yet. Or maybe he's just been born. 
All right, we will be uh, be right back with our number 52s. Welcome back. I don't. I, I always. I always feel like I want to copy you and do like the really big, the, the really big lead up. They can't but do it I as well as I But I also feel like I can't do it as well as you do. So I'm. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to commit for the rest of the podcast run. I think, I think at some point to if, not if the, do. If the, if the if the like lead in feels right. It never feels right to do it. it. You know what feels right if to do it? It's tight. Yeah. That rhymed by the way. But what feels right to do is to tell the listeners that my number 52 is Martin Scorsese's 2004 um, Howard Hughes biopic, The Aviator. You know, sometimes I get these crazy ideas about things that may not really be there. I'll have him dragged here to Washington. I want to see the whites of his life. We are in a street fight, and I'm not going to lose. He owns Pan Am. He owns Congress. But he does not own the sky. Beyond the wealth. You want me to bribe senators? I don't want them bribed, Jack. I want them bought. Something drove him. You have called me a liar and a thief and a war property. Beyond the legend. Federal warrant. Everything in these offices is the private property of Hughes Productions. Something consumed him. They are touching things. Beyond the genius. The deadline is now completely unrealistic. No, I want to see the blueprints again. Show me all the blueprints. Show me all the blueprints. Show me all the blueprints. Is the truth behind the man? I'll get a doctor. No one sees him like this. Sometimes I truly fear that I'm losing my mind. Um, the Aviator obviously stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate uh, Blanchett and everybody else uh, and their mother. Um, even a bunch of people that you didn't expect to be in it like i forgot adam scott was in it like adam scott just appears and like oh yeah adam scott's in it he's like here's my cousin and willem dafoe is in it i for- totally forgot willem dafoe I remember, is in it. I remember willem dafoe being it's like it. oh there's willem dafoe um you know let's just get all we like i always do we'll get all this big stupid shit out of the way it was nominated for 11 academy awards and one of the most problematic academy awards in the history of the academy awards oh because of the winners not because of the year that year is fucking fantastic no no because of the winners because it just it was it just weird it was just they did everything wrong except maybe for hillary swank but they did everything else wrong for the whole for the whole thing um and, and, and except for Charlie Kaufman winning for Eternal Sunshine. Well, was very They got that right. Actually, I mean, I'm glad, Wait, whoa, 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 I'm glad Hillary Swank won. I think Kate Winslet, I mean, Kate Winslet should have, uh, should have. Whoa, wait a minute. We're going to get bogged down in this awards again. Adapted screenplay is fine, too. What was adapted screenplay? Sideways. Oh, yeah, that was fine. And, okay. I mean, and Kate Winslet winning is fine, too, but, but that's. We'll get to it. You have it's, your problem is not a Kate Blanchett problem. It's a the person she's playing. That's it. Problem. She shouldn't have played it so well. Um, yeah. So got nominated for eleven Academy Awards: Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Actor, and uh, Supporting Actor for Alan Alda, which is awesome and kind of terrible, but good. Like <laughs> it's cool. He chews so much scenery in this film. Um, it won five for cinematography um, for Robert Richardson. Which is, you know, I'm glad Robert Richardson has whatever Oscars. He's good. Um, editing, costume design, art direction, and actress in a supporting role for Kate Blanchett playing Catherine Hepburn, um, who we will get to later. Oh, yeah, Gwen Stefani was also 
Gene, Gene Harlow, Harlow in this yeah. movie, and I was just like, oh man, I, can't, I forgot what they did this shit. And then Lee Daniels redid, like, casted the same type of movie when he did the uh, the Butler, and he just was like, every president's say, a famous I person. You're gonna say Precious? No, because no one was a famous person. In Monique. Precious. I don't know if we're going to call Monique a famous person. Okay. She's you know well what? known, but I don't know if she's you famous. You know what? This would end our friendship. Talk about Aviator. <laughs> would it? Oh, please say that actually would. That you have really deep, hot, precious takes. <laughs> we should do a bonus episode. <laughs> the Mario loses it about precious episode. <laughs> no, just Monique. Oh, just Monique. Okay. Um, there's a lot of... There's Academy a, Award winner Monique. She did win. I mean, she deserved it. She... Fucking, fucking destroyed that movie. Yeah. Speaking of chewing scenery. <laughs> um, yeah. So, The Aviator is one of the movies on my list which I've seen a million times. I can always watch it. It's I enjoy almost every second of it. Um, it's a lot of seconds. Even even that like golf scene? I ah, love the golf scene. That scene gives me such a headache. Like, because visually. of the color? Yeah. I mean, I understand what they're doing, but it just gives... I can't... I, did, I saw this in theaters and I had to turn away like during that part. I think one of the reasons I love it so much is because you get to watch Leonardo DiCaprio's face, where he's just like, what? Huh? And it's great. I mean, it's obviously not real. He's just acting. But, so like I said, I can watch every second of this. One of the reasons I can watch every second of this is because Leonardo DiCaprio is in every second of this. And I think Leonardo DiCaprio is fantastic. And I saw this in hot theaters. Hot take. <laughs> not a hot take. Um, let's just take a pause real quick from the conversation so I can run through the list of available beers for Mario. There is another one of these. Okay. Front Porch Brewing is dead. There is a City Steam. Let's do, let's do a Naughty Nurse. Naughty Nurse, there you go. Let's do it. Not, City Steam out of Hartford, Connecticut. Um, you know, another local beer. There's also a Thimble Island, American Ale. Keep that. Um, I still have some of mine, so I'll save it. Um, we should just reach in randomly. That's Back to the movie, yeah, grab egg. Yeah. No, there has to be more. There's only, there's only a six-pack in there. Um... I've, yeah, not a hot take, but a hot take. I fucking love Leonardo DiCaprio. And this is the movie that kind of cemented that for me, in the sense that I saw this movie like a million times in theaters because I just I just loved it. I loved his performance so much. Um, I think everything about it was great. I love the fact that... Of the nominees, he was... He's, he's the, easily the best. The best. I mean, I him... Mean, Cheadle's close. Don Cheadle's very good, but... Tom Cruise probably should have won actor that year, but whatever, <clears throat> we're not going to talk about this. Yeah, we're not going to go into that. Um, <laughs> but Leonardo DiCaprio... And Martin Scorsese along with him. (laughs) Martin Scorsese along with him um, just decided to just throw everything they knew about movies or acting or whatever at this two-hour and 50-minute movie and just hope for the best. To the point where a lot of times this doesn't even seem like a Martin Scorsese movie. Doesn't seem like an anybody movie. It just seems like someone who really knows how to make movies made a really long, super expensive movie with way more special effects than they probably wanted to use. And Leonardo DiCaprio just, just eating the screen, you know, every chance he fucking got. Even if the emotions of the movie didn't really seem like of the scene didn't really seem to demand that he get super pumped up. He was super. He was super pumped up. I'm thinking of like, you know, like the Alan Alda scene, like the, the when they're having the lunch scene, and he like bends over the the desk and he's like, "You want to go to war with me?" And it's just like he didn't say he wanted to go to war with you. Like, just relax. 
Like, and everything that he says, like, he's like, oh, you don't want to go to war with me. Everything he says is stuff that he just said, like, right there. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's not like he has all this weird information. He's got, he's got some information. You know what I mean? It's not like he's going to just ruin his, his, this guy's life. But he's just, Leonardo DiCaprio is just so into this movie. He's so into this role. Um, I just find it, I find it really magnetic and powerful. Um, and watchable, you know what I mean? It's a fun, because of that, even though it's a super long movie, it's a super fun movie for me. And then you get awesome performances. I mean, you get, you know, an Alec, a really great Alec Baldwin performance. Alan Alda's great. Ian Holm is really great. Um, you know, he gets him to say clouds really, that look like breasts full of milk. I really enjoy Kate Beckinsale in this, too. Yeah, I mean, the Ava She's Gardner really thing is really Ava awesome. Gardner yeah, really well. Incredibly well. Um, you know, even... Stuff like Brent Spinner gets like a chance to kind of do some some pretty cool acting. Danny Houston gets a chance to do Dan, some. Danny Houston, I love Danny Houston. Like I will always love him just for what he did with Constant Gardner. But man, does he always kind of play Danny Houston? No, he does, but it's kind of works here because yeah. he's just kind of along for the ride and like reacting to things. And you know, he's like, "That's cool. That guy's crazy." Um, you get some good John C. Riley stuff here, Edward like Herman. peak John C. Riley, Edward Herman. <laughs> that one, that one weird role. Um, you know Adam Scott and, and Julan, all the other ones. Blah, blah, blah. The reason this is my fifty-two, and not like my seventy-six, is for one very specific reason. You can probably make a. You have one of these two. I'm sure. For me, as a musician. It was always kind of a big deal when you had listened to, or not a musician, it's not a music thing, musician thing somewhat. Yeah, because I'm say, like, I'm not a musician. As much as a music. I do not have one of these. No, things, no, but no. like, as much as a music fan, that you've listened to enough music, and then you can hear something, and you could know exactly who's, who's playing the guitar, who's playing the bass, who the drummer is. You know what I mean? Mm. Just from like a thing that they do. Like, like a traveling us. Wilbury sort of scenario? Um... In regards, to, in regards to what, like who wrote the song? I mean, you can just you know who's playing what. No, no, but it's more. I was gonna say it's more in relation to like jazz. So like you'll hear something in oh, the background, yeah. or even, oh, but but rock too. Like you'll hear something in the background, and you'll just be like, oh that. Or like when we talked about Mandy last year with the Star Child opening, and like I didn't know it was, I didn't know King Crimson did the intro to that song, but, but I just heard the. Like, oh, and I was like, Crimson. Robert Fripp is ripping up the fucking. He's in Mandy. Like, how is this working? Um, that type of stuff. And as like, as I grew up with my dad's a, a music guy and like he, he knew all the people and on all the records and he could say, look, this is this guy. And oh, oh this is, must be this guy playing. And oh, the guy, this guy's doing the background vocals. And you know, you can hear this player, this guy drumming and he drummed for this many times. And, and blah, you're blah, like, blah, dad, blah. I just want to play catch. <laughs> He's like, no, we're talking about <laughs> this. Um, I suppose it, it was always a big deal for me when I could like, after I listened to enough Coltrane and I could walk into a room and be like, oh, there's giant steps. Or, oh, it's just Coltrane playing whatever. Like, I don't know what song this is, but I know it's Coltrane. Or, I don't know what song this is, but I know that's Jacob Pistorius on bass. I don't know what song this is, but that's definitely Richard Thompson playing guitar. They just do a thing. You know what I mean? They just, they do a thing. And once you've, once you've dug in enough, you can say that's the thing that they do. By the time I had seen The Aviator, I had seen... Um, Raging Bull, a bunch of times, which we'll talk about much later. Goodfellas, which I already talked about. Obviously, Casino. Maybe a couple of scenes of Cape Fear. You know what I mean? I hadn't seen Coon Dune yet. Um, Have you seen King of Comedy? I haven't seen King of Comedy yet. 
I'd seen obviously. I, I think I'd mean seen Mean Streets. I don't think I'd seen Mean Streets at that point. I came to Mean Streets after everything. Else. I only recently just saw like mean collecting the, like the Scorsese stuff. Um, you know, Gangs of Megan New Young, Young, uh, Young Robert De Niro. And she was like, "What? He used to look like that?" And I was like, "Yep." Um, you know, Gangs of New York was kind of something different. It looked weird. It kind of was weird, but it was still Martin Scorsese and you Brendan know, Gleeson. Now that you see it, you're just like, "Oh yeah, I guess so." Are you wait? Hold on a second, quickly. Are you on this now train of everyone shitting on Gangs of New York? What's going on here? Everyone hates Gangs of New York all of a sudden. Well, because it's just weird. It's a it's weird good. movie. It's fine. It's good. It's fine. I might say it's good. It's better it's than problematic. Fine. It's problematic. Like we can talk about this philosophically. No, 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 no. It's problematic in the sense that Leonardo DiCaprio um, is too much in it. Cameron Diaz is a weird casting, even though she's not the worst, but she's not great. She's a problematic. John C. Riley and Brendan Gleeson. And John C. All, but all the ancillary guys are good. The other problem I think that people have with it is the fact that he did a version of Bill the Butcher for There Will Be Blood and talking about Dan D. Lewis. So he it kind of, Bill the Butcher kind of transformed like the gruffness. He just took that gruffness and gave it a different accent and it was There Will Be Blood. And that, like There Will Be Blood is, was better. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't fair. so stagey. You know what I mean? There was no scenes of... But Bill the Butcher is stagey. Like, yeah, I, I think, but I there think was no... Two inher- I do think they're two inherently different characters. Like, Oh, they're definitely inherently different there's characters. There's a flamboyance to Bill the Butcher that there isn't to Daniel Plainview. I agree. I agree with you, but I think you can make the case that he's doing very similar. He's Gangs of New York is better than Hugo. Si- That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Gangs of New York is better than you, but I like Hugo. But people will not say that. But go ahead. Go, no, go, let's go back to Okay. There's the scene in this movie after Howard Hughes, and I didn't go into it, because like, who gives a shit? It's a, Howard Hughes starts making Hell's Angels, and it ends after you know, he gets the Hercules off the ground. That's and it's his it's his life. It's based more around after the Hell's Angels thing. It's based more around like him flying planes and his relationships than it is about like him making Scarface or the Outlaw or something like that. Like there's moments of like the Outlaw stuff in there, but it's it's mostly in relation to kind of his feelings about the government and for you know humorous effect. Um, there's a moment after he crashes his plane. He's in the hospital forever and he's kind of losing control of his of his faculties and, and he's confronted by Ava Gardner in her home about all the bugs that she's, you know, the, the bugs that she found. And he's got 12 bugs in her house. And and he's like, I always, you know, I have to know where you are. I want to take care of you and all this other stuff. And, and uh, they're arguing. And then she then she picks up like a objet d'art and she smacks him in the head with it. And there's a crack. And then the camera pulls back and there's a medium shot of Beautiful, stereotypical Martin Scorsese medium shot of Leonardo DiCaprio falling over. And then there's another close-up. And then there's another great stereotypical Scorsese medium shot of like Leonardo DiCaprio getting up and staggering away. And when I was watching it in theaters, I said, <gasps> I see it. It's Scorsese. Like, that's what he does. You know what I mean? Like, it's Goodfellas. And he does it all the time in Taxi Driver. He does it in Mean Streets. He does it in everything. And all of these tight... And all of these... Not huge movies. He's got these scenes, you know what I mean? These medium shots where you get to see the, the full ramifications of the violence. You know what I mean? It's not just like the punch and then the blood and then like a face. And like, you know what I mean? And then like a weird angle of them staggering out. It's a flat shot of somebody getting hit in the head. Um, and at the time, 
it was like one of the most profound because I didn't I didn't think about movies that way yet. You know what I mean? Like I loved movies and and there's a bunch of movies on my list that I saw before this um, that I had really profound like emotional reactions to. But this was one of the ones that like I loved this movie and I had a weirdly film literate reaction to it as well. And that was really like I just. I carried that with me for a really long time. And even now I just wait for it and I can see it. And you can kind of analyze it along with like a bunch of shots in Goodfellas, a bunch of shots in Casino. Um, Like I said, there's a bunch of shots in Taxi Driver that are kind of just like this. Obviously the same things are happening, but they all look the same. It's a a visual signature that is just Martin Scorsese's. You know what I mean? Mm. And, um, and that was very powerful. That was very powerful for me. And it's, it, I carried it and it, I took that and I translated that into like thinking about movies more that way and like thinking about directors more that way. So then, you know, you confront the Coen brothers work on a different level and Paul Thomas Anderson's work on a different level and all these. So, and then subsequently like Darren Aronofsky's work on a different level. Like this is an Aronofsky thing. This is what Aronofsky does. It doesn't matter if it's pie or Noah or mother or, you know, whatever he's working on now, it's going to have these things in it. It's just gonna. It's gonna look like this. It's gonna feel like this. Um, these are things that they they just do. Um, and I, I, like I said, I'm sure from a film perspective, you have things like that too, where you're just kind of like, "Whoa, that's that director," and he does that. No, I never recognized directors. You don't. No. I thought this was directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. <laughs> there is a resemblance to Men in Black too. Um. I have an adverse reaction to this in that same exact way, which is, which will be fun. This is going to be fun. I really, really, really do not like this movie. I, because it isn't Scorsese to me. It doesn't, and it's not fair. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not, but this is, I don't this disagree is, this with is not a fair thing. I'm not saying I Say I do not like this movie. It's a really well constructed film. And, just, and just, works. I'm just gonna interrupt real quick. I'm not saying that like the whole movie is Scorsese. I'm just saying that scene is Scorsese. This movie oh, I agree fair. with you. This film, there's nothing Scorsese about like the dog fight scene. Like in the air. There's nothing Scorsese even about like you know, something that Scorsese probably should have been able to do better, which is like the trial scenes or like the hearing scenes, you know what I mean? Which are just like anybody shots. There, or even like, like some of the interior him in in, in Catherine Hepburn stuff is just anybody making that movie. It's not Scorsese. It's just it's just a guy making a movie. But continue. I'm sorry. Go ahead. This is to me it's still still a great film, objectively. You know, it is. It's an experiment. It's it's yes. An attempt. Thank you very you much. You know, it's it, it is it is, you know, a trial run for everything that he was going to do experimental in the future. It's a trial run for, you know, the things he does visually and with CGI in Hugo. It's a trial run for the sort of frantic energy of Wolf of Wall Street. It's a trial run where you can already tell for the, you know, computer graphics that he's going to use and the over budget. He's going to kind of the extreme budget. Netflix should have had a big warning uh, of Irishman. Mm-hmm. I was going through a period, like I became, I had that moment of, of seeing of seeing trademarks and, and, and really endearing myself to to director trademarks, especially about two years before this, mm-hmm. and I was getting frustrated because directors like Peter Jackson, 
had kind of abandoned it with Lord of the Rings for me. Peter Jackson was like a really grindhousey, grimy, in the flat director who sometimes experimented with computer graphics or large practical effects to mm-hmm. do something, but then he's abandoning all of that. You know, I still see the trademarks in Lord of the Rings, but it's abandoning that. Coen Brothers getting kitschy with um, Lady Killers and then Intolerable Cruelty, completely abandoning what they had done before. Even Oh Brother, to a point. Oh uh, yeah, Old Brother still has enough of the hallmarks. It's time yeah, to, like, yeah. The, but it's almost the like script. turned like turned up to like eleven. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I was getting frustrated by that, so I went into Aviator with skepticism to a degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had such an emotional reaction—not an emotional reaction. I had, I had that same skepticism with Gangs in New York. Mm-hmm. When I, you know, I don't really have a lot of Scorsese. Nothing Scorsese has done has really done enough to show up frequently on my list, but but the undercurrent of his filmography is something that, you know, if we're, if we're talking about pivotal directors, Scorsese pops up on the list for me. Well, yeah. You know, just just, just in the sense of, like, like he, he encapsulates something of, of, a, of a vibrant, frantic, constant energy throughout his films. Mm-hmm. You know, mean streets to, you know, to Taxi Driver... I'm not a biggest Raging Bull fan, but even like Raging Bull, uh, especially like something like Casino for me and all that, which is a weird thing to say, but I love Casino. There are people that love Casino. Um, and all that. And even like Bringing Out the Dead. I really enjoyed like yeah, Bringing, Bringing Out, Out the Dead. Yeah, Bringing Out the Dead is a weird fun. movie. It's, it's got a good energy. And yeah. And when Gangs of New York came out, I had this skepticism. You know, he was going period. He was going heavily period and it wasn't going to work. But this, you know, Gangs of New York... Despite what its flaws and despite how PH people hate that is Scorsese to like a T. You know, everything about that is Scorsese. And I went to see this and I saw a couple of those moments. I, I don't know if they, you know, that, that, that moment exactly was it, but kind of just more the shot composition, especially, um, you know, Thelma Schumacher editing was very much on point with the, oh, yeah. with I mean, the it's Scorsese perfect. You know, template. But everything else was just like, it's the same. He's doing exactly what everyone else did. He's he's abandoning the technique, and yeah, I appreciate what he's doing, but it's it's not tight anymore. It's 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 lackadaisical at times. Not lackadaisical in the sense. It's 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 f- efferent. It's it, it flows. It, it kind of vibes for a while. It, it doesn't have a tightness and and urgency to it that Scorsese usually has. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very segmented. Heavily segmented, it, it you know all Scorsese kind of like much of Scorsese is kind of like you know the biopic sort of um, the biopic sort of carrying through the storyline, but it, it can it very much builds upon one another. Mm-hmm. Whereas this film, just through its you know reliance and not reliance, but it's it's a experimental decision to you know change camera filters and to update as the years go on to like yeah. what were the film styles at the time feels made it feel almost like a gimmick. I know it wasn't a gimmick. No, but no, I think it, it's not it's a, a gimmick. It's no, not but, a gimmick necessarily, but it's also unnecessary. But it, but it, it to me, oh, you said unnecessary? Yeah. Yeah, but it kind of ruins that kind of like flow for me. And and so I saw these little fragments of Scorsese, but in the end, and, and I saw it especially at that first third I love, like that entire Hell's Angels production mm-hmm. is so, you know, it's grandiose, but so Scorsese still, because like how... How much energy there is. But, yeah, How much energy yeah, yeah. there is, but there's still 
despite all the energy around it, it still comes down to the performers. Well, you know, it's it's energy it's with pe- it's, it's two people performing in front of a pole. So it's energy with a purpose. Yeah, exactly. The rest, like, there's parts of the rest of the movie where there's there's energy because DiCaprio infuses like literally every scene with energy, but they're not really doing anything. So he's trying to bring energy to scenes that are generally just kind of energy less and they just kind of seem weird yeah, yeah. like the faith demur like questioning scene just kind of like yeah i get it like it's very suspicious and and kind of creepy but it also seems strange like why do like he just picks up women especially because right after that like we see her talking to danny houston and i guess whoever danny houston's with and telling her, telling them like about her life, it's like that is weird enough. We don't need these extra. We don't need these extra Scorsese scenes mm. where you try to be like subversive or perverse or like one of these other. Yeah, no, exactly. V word things. Um, and that's the thing too. Like, like, like the pacing at times is is a struggle too. Like, like, like that golf scene. Like even though you you rest in the performances, it's still kind of it's a slow, it's a very much a slowdown in the middle of the film. Well, me. because it just comes out of nowhere. You yeah. the whole Hell's Angels things, and then he dry, and then he flies to the beach to pick up Catherine Hepburn, and then they play golf. And you're just like, wait, what? I mean, and and like, and I that's the thing. I mean, I'm, obviously, like like you know, I I would say Kate Blanchett's great in this. She's unfortunately playing by most despised actress on the face of the world i we've talked about this before that people have those performers and actors that despite their talents you're going to always hate them i hate Catherine hepburn yeah, well, i she, think we talked about this before we have but she, i really i mean she ruined Catherine hepburn ruined a pretty good should have been better filmed version of um a long day's journey into night with like Jason Robards and Ralph Richardson and stuff like that. Also, also just, Catherine just, Hepburn just, just see like the house she Catherine has on Hepburn. the shoreline of Connecticut, and you realize she's a real, she's a real okay. piece of shit. But let's <laughs> just replay this movie. Um, I kind of, I was, I, I always kind of have gotten off on like the weird experimentalism of this movie. Oh you know no, what I mean? it's, like it's, it's great. Even in the spots where it doesn't work, I'm just like, cool. But my, like, I don't get no, it. But I, like, cool. I don't get it either. But like, I don't get why this movie has to be this way. But I think it's, I, I respect the fact that Scorsese was just like, fuck it, this is not my movie, I didn't develop this thing, someone else developed it, and I, I, I'm directing it with DiCaprio, but, like, let's just go, let's just like, roll, let's, let's do all the things. I would like to imagine a list of pivotal films that make, that worked in a sense of how much they drove into me, my sense of film, but that is the opposite that is the the mirror of this and aviator falls on a list i mean like i said i respect it as a film but it's so ingrained in me just to be the exemplary example this isn't like lord of the rings exemplary example of like what i don't want to see a filmmaker doing i, I like filmmakers experimenting but you don't want to see them shed more, all their stuff i don't want to see them shed their own stuff but, but like there's still so many like kind of like hiccups in this and like hiccups in like lord of the rings and that's probably a very big thing to say. That um, I'm like, I, you know what you're doing. Like, you know to do your style. You, you can commit to that. You don't have to fully commit to that. And I, and I appreciate when you experiment. Um, but, you know, Arnofsky's experimenting with, like, to a degree with Mother. 
you know, in, in terms and of the, I mean, in and terms of his pacing, and, yeah, in terms of, like, and of pacing and Noah and whatnot, but still carrying this energy of Arnofsky. Um, but it was a different, this, and this loses to me its energy. Like, it's a little it loses bit of a different Scorsese energy. Yeah, it's a little bit of a different time. Two thousand. It feels like a studio project. Like like you know well, those well, directors, like, like just John Ford that. directing like an. Yeah, random 1940s movies. Um, Fox demanded it he was, make. It was a diff- It was a weird time. Like 2004, I think was a weird time because I think Darren Aronofsky has never been forced, in even in Noah, to make a studio picture. You know what I mean? He can all even when he was making a studio picture, he could always kind of do whatever he wants. Yeah. Like Noah. I mean, he backed away from Batman because they're like, you can't do your thing. Right, and, and he was just like, well, I'm not going to do that then. Um. For whatever people think about Noah, Noah Noah works and doesn't work like literally within like a second of itself. Um, but Noah's a Darren Aronofsky movie, and every shot of that movie is a Darren Aronofsky movie. You definitely can't say the same thing for The Aviator. Um, but again, it's a movie. It plays for me. That's the thing. I don't like a lot of stuff. Like I don't. I don't do a lot of things for fun. I do a few things for fun. I watch a few movies for fun, and The Aviator is definitely one of those movies. Like Step Brother, like Tommy Boy, like Catch Me If You Can, in a way, which again has another another Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Um, those are things I I just I just kind of um, I, I watch them because I enjoy them. This has the extra little thing. This has the extra twist in it that I was I was the first time I was really cognizant of like of the language of film, like working, like how directors work and how directors can mm. kind of, but it is problematic in the sense that most of the movie, despite its energy is missing that kind of overall score. Like, you know, 15 years later when you're watching this, you're just like, well, this doesn't look anything like a Scorsese movie. Yeah. Um, and like Hugo's kind of the same way. Like, like you're wondering who made Hugo because it just doesn't look like it's supposed to. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like it's supposed to. It doesn't have that same kind of qualities that. And I think like the, the pro- best Scorsese stuff does. Aviator doesn't suffer from this problem because Aviator still has like a like an importance to it. Still has like a gra- not a gravity. Still has like a a staging to it that that elevates it. Like Scorsese, no matter how slight his pictures has, has has things you can put on a pedestal. But Hugo is also a big movie, but it lacks such like a to me a signature that it yes. feels slight. I agree with you because I like Hugo a lot. I think Hugo is. A, yeah, I like. It. I, I think I like. I'd enjoy it. Right, I enjoyed it too. But you're right. It does it is missing that kind of. It feels like specific, such a minor feature. Yes. Um, yeah, it feels like a just like a studio project that like anyone could have made, that had a good cinematographer. It's kind of a quasi passion project. Supposed to be, yeah. yeah. But I don't know. I believe it. It's just. I don't know. No, it, I, just, it lacks that. It lacks that. Yeah. Signature. I mean, he, I, I I respect what he's doing, and he does it well. I mean, he does it. Like there's nothing wrong with Aviator. There's, I mean, there's stuff wrong, but there's nothing. But if you had to choose the Aviator dollar baby esque yeah, okay, wrong, or <laughs> Finding Neverland esque wrong, with it with you know Aviator mm-hmm. or Hugo, yeah. But they're still not like they don't stand up to the enormity of like Scorsese's catalog. Yes, because they don't have. It's a weird that, entry. That it's a weird. Yeah. Th- actually, but I respect it. Yeah. This it'd be interesting to look at this and, and Gangs of New York together because they are both really weird entries. Like Gangs of New York is so Scorsese, but people have like really mixed feelings about it, and people seem to have less mixed feelings about The Aviator, even though it's so much less Scorsese. I don't know. It's weird. And I think that's. I almost think that's why. Because like, maybe that is so why. Yeah. Scorsese. 
All right, uh, yeah. we will be right back with Mario. Speaking of directors, fifty-two. There are two, argumentatively three, because it's a pair of one of those two, directors who define almost everything that I see in film, that I love in film. That if any director in any way can workingly pantomime or mimic these directors' trademarks... I will be utterly enamored with their film. I will give leagues upon leagues of clearance to ignore its faults, to ignore its mistakes. Because these directors underline why I love film. One of those we've not talked about either of these not. directors okay. at the point. First ones we're not going to talk about for a little bit still. A couple, couple weeks. A little more than that. Well, couple, for you. A couple months. A couple months for me. For, oh, yeah. For, but we're going to talk about them in a couple weeks. We're going to talk about them in a couple weeks. But for me, we're not going to talk about those, those directors uh, for a couple months. Um, this director, however, uh, is going to be the first of four times we talk yeah, about him in the top 52 films. Good volume. Um, well, I should say that this director inspired one of my favorite directors, being Danny DeVito, uh, the, the great the mind bear. of the bear, um, of Death is Smoochie. And for tonight's 52, uh, his entry, Throw Mama from the Train, <laughs> um, starring the incredible Oscar-nominated performance from Anne Ramsey. Rest in peace. What a great actress. I love Anne Ramsey. Uh... But seriously, um, my number 52 is the first film, an entry, from the director Alfred Hitchcock. It is 1951's Strangers on a Train. I beg your pardon. Aren't you Guy Haynes? My name is Bruno. Bruno Anthony. Want to hear one of my ideas for a perfect murder? Two fellows meet accidentally. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Crisscross. I may be old-fashioned, but I thought murder was against the law. You think my theory's okay, Gary? You like it? Sure, bro. Sure. Now, everything didn't go smoothly. She doesn't want the divorce. But you sound so savage, Guy. Sure, I sound savage. I feel savage. I'd like to break her neck. What do you do? When you're a famous amateur tennis star married to an unscrupulous, disgusting woman. <laughs> Record store employee. Yeah, who apparently her, employee, her employer doesn't realize she even works there. Um, who has pregnant by another man and is never, you know, going to let you go. But you're, in, you know engaged with a with a beautiful intelligent successful young woman who you know respects and loves you what are you gonna do well you're gonna get on a train to washington dc you're gonna do it and you're just gonna sit there and just kinda <laughs> be cool with that and hope for the best but sometimes the best doesn't happen 
sometimes across from you is a man who notices you from the papers, knows that you have a pretty shitty wife, and knows you have a pretty cool lady, and knows they have a problem, because he himself has a problem, although much less of a problem. His, his, really his, not this problem. man's problem is very justified. His father, so cruel, because, you know, this man is very clearly insane. <laughs> but what do you do when you're that tennis star? Why well, you engage this man in a conversation and eventually listen to him say, ah, I have a good hypothetical idea. What if... That I definitely just came up with. That I just came up with and have not been planning <laughs> and have not kind of built in. Um, what if I kill your wife and you kill my father and there'll be no connection? What if... What do you do in those moments? Well, then you go and kind of incriminate yourself after realizing your wife has no intention of leaving you uh, to your soon-to-be hopeful wife. Mm -hmm. um, the senator's daughter. And then what do you do when this psychopath actually murders your wife? You, you, just, you just assume that the police will never believe you, even though you have a very powerful soon-to-be father-in-law who could probably swipe, wipe this under the table. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Well, you just go through a good two hours of great popcorn noir Hitchcock. Uh, I saw this movie way after I saw the other three films that show up on my list. Uh -huh. um, but I, I also saw it after the other three films that show up on your list. Is that because you just saw it like this week? No, no, no. Oh, no. you've seen it before? Okay. Yeah. No, I've given Hitchcock like all of my, my efforts. The other three films that show up on my list are intensely great films. Uh, they are films that rise above the genre. Uh, the one that's lower on my list, that's the lowest on my list, will surprise people. Well, no, yeah, now it's not going to surprise people. But I think it just kind of barely rises above the genre, whereas the other two are pinnacles of film. The birds. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but speaking of, I, I knew that Hitchcock is, we all know he's the master of genre. He's the master of noir. He's the master of suspense. Blah, 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 blah. But I was always surprised by every single one of his films I saw that were minor films that rested in genre, that they didn't strive for something more, mm -hmm. were never really that good to me. I hate rope. The birds is stupid. <laughs> and extremely problematic from no, the why? production standpoint. And the fact that it's like, Tippy Hedren, I'm going to glue these birds to you. And I'm going to sexually harass you. That's fucking problematic. Um, but I, so I kind of went from his filmography and I just nothing that was minor appealed to me. You know, other films like Vertigo and Rear Window are, are great features, but they're bigger features. They are features that kind of like transcend the genre still. They are still, mm -hmm. like they're, they're pinnacles of their genre, but they're still kind of films that are doing a lot more work. Uh -huh. And then I stumbled upon Strangers on a Train. Having always heard that was kind of like a bigger film of his. It was a film that kind of like also transcended. And I was like, no, it doesn't. This is, 
This is the pop. This is popcorn Hitchcock. This is what I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. I've been looking for Hitchcock that is making the Saturday afternoon movie. I wanted to know that he could do it. I wanted to know that he, like, I knew that the other pair of directors who meant so much to me could do that sort of thing. I wanted to know, I wanted to see something that showed to me that Hitchcock was doing a slighter film, but still could do it with something that really punched me in the, not punched me in the gut, but that still drove me into the film. You wanted to see the movie that inspired Brian De Palma? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, and this, this is it mm-hmm. it is carried by two really good performances from Robert Walker and Alfred Hitchcock's daughter yeah <laughs> she's really fun in this she's, she's so, so weird. funny um, why is she so weird and then two pretty bad performances gonna say it Farley Granger's not that good in this. Uh, Farley Granger's great. <laughs> He's so on the nose and like concrete with his emotions. And Ruth Roman's just kind of like breezing through it. Well, yeah, but that's that's all she... I mean, at, at that time, that's all they wanted her to do. No, exactly. Uh, but Patricia Hitchcock, oh man, she's so good. I love it. <laughs> I don't understand so what the point of her is. She's so good. Yeah, she's she's like, still alive, by the way. She's very I, funny. Honestly, if somebody gives me $6 million right now, to make a movie, you're gonna cast I'm her. going to go to Patricia Hitchcock. I will even offer $2 million to be in that movie. You know what's funny though is that, excuse me, Midian, the inappropriate shit that she would have to say now to like mirror with like, you know, <laughs> considering for inflation, the inflation of the culture and the language now would be like unbelievable. Yeah, she'd be like, unbelievable guys, stuff would come out of her mouth. I believe everyone deserves health care. Ah! Uh, no, but yeah, guys, I really think Mitch McConnell's going too far in the Senate. <laughs> guys, have it a little gun control. <laughs> <laughs> guys, white nationalism isn't a mental health problem <laughs> or a video game problem. Yeah. Oh Jesus, Christ. guys, our president's very culpable for what happened this past weekend. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Um, That's what the bar is for, Mario. <laughs> Oh, I'm at the end of the show. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but this just, it's so fucking good. It's so fucking good, but so fucking silly and goofy. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's so good at being silly and goofy, but it looks fucking. I mean, that, this, this, is, this is going to be me when I'm talking about these directors. Like, Robert Burke's cinematography in this is. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The shadows. Shadows everywhere. And, it, you know, you get that. You get that nice hallmark of, of, of Hitchcock of using the glasses um, when Miriam's being strangled. You get that. Well, like, he doesn't like ever want to shy away from the violence. Yeah. But he finds a way to show you the violence without having to show you the violence. Still being like, he even though it's post-code, still being code Yeah, like he doesn't want to, su- he never really wants to suggest it. He wants to show a knife. He wants to show the hands around her neck, but he just knows that he can't. Yeah, so he'll find a way to do it. But you know, the, the shadows work in this, and and like even you know the, the scenes of the the. I mean, it's still early Hitchcock, so he's still learning how to like juxtapose drama. But the end of the tennis game versus uh, Bruno reaching 
for the lighter. You know, it, it cuts back and forth, and it's like, oh. And, like, at first, I kind of, like, was watching, like, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, it's going to, like, play into when Guy is winning, that's when Bruno's not going to be able to grab the lighter, but when Bruno grabs it, like, it's going to turn, and it doesn't mm-hmm. work out that way at all. But it still works as, like, a jump cut back mm-hmm. and forth thing, and it just, you see all these hallmarks that make Hitchcock such a master not really of, of the mystery, because there's not, there's no mystery in here. And no. there's not a ton of real suspense either. But a mass, like, like there. Not genuinely earned suspense, no. Yeah, it, it's, it's a slight suspense. It's, it's not a tense film. The most tense this movie is, is in the, op- is actually when they're strangers on a train. See, I actually think the tensest scene in this movie is that f- the first time Bruno is following Miriam in, at the carnival. When, because there's no talking, like she's laughing with the two guys that she's with, and they're like having kind of, but she's still kind of chatter, she's still kind of enamored with Bruno. But she's like looking over her shoulder, and, and he's always ena- there, kind of enamored, and he's kind of enamored, yeah. yeah. And well, because he's following her, and he's making eyes at her, and he's like winning a Cupid doll for her, and he's he's and sitting Bruno. behind her on the on the thing, and um, and it's unfortunate that this this ends up being Robert Walker's second to last performance, I believe. Uh, he dies at 32, by the way. He's 31 when making this. Holy shit. He looks like he's 51. Yeah, I saw. I was like looking it up, and I was like, what the fuck? And I was like, do I look this bad? I had a real existential crisis this week. And I looked in the mirror, and I was like, you look good, son. <laughs> um, yeah. But he has such body charisma. He carries himself with such, like... But I think I, know, yeah. I... I just did a little shoulder roll for the, for the un- uninitiated. Can you feel that, ladies? Yeah. Um, um, I feel the same way. That, it's funny, because I feel... A lot of the same way that you do. Um, because I'm not like a super Hitchcock fan. Like I, I appreciate I appreciate all the things I've just never I hope, I get used to, to no, no, watching Hitchcock. I do but I mean I am used to watching Hitchcock. I can definitely I could t- talk about it and analyze it. Like I appreciate Hitchcock intellectually. I've never had like an emotional response to Hitchcock. But it's funny because I've um, you know, like I've watched Rear Window a bunch of times because we watched it and we had to watch it for a couple of classes for for different for different reasons. Calculus, you know, calculus. Yeah, I mean, so the angles, the angle, the yeah. angle is. Can you actually see that? The yeah. distance and like how long it takes people to get places, something like that. Um, I think Rear Window is supposed to be more fun, and I think I wanted Rear Window to be more fun. I think I've wanted all of these movies to be more fun, but. This is the first one I've encountered that is just fun. It's funniest, and you don't even worry about the fact that it doesn't make any sense. It's funny. The fact that the end of the movie it is super funny, and even when it's not supposed to be funny, you're just like, "Huh, that's really funny." Like when the cop shoots at um, guy and just kills (laughs) kills the the uh, The operator. Yeah, the operator thing. uh, Carousel operator, but then even kills him. Kills the guy after the whole thing. The carousel falls apart. That guy would definitely go to jail. By the way, nowadays. (laughs) Yeah, after the whole thing falls apart, and like the cop explodes. The cop and guy have Bruno like on the ground under the horse, whatever. And he's like, Bruno, why don't you tell him about the lighter? And he's like, I just I don't wish I could help you out. And the cop's like, We gotta have that lighter. And you're just like, you gotta have the lighter? <laughs> like, you have, it's like the one thing you have to have for this to all work out? But I'm pretty sure you can, just in, you can tell that guy's the bad guy. And I mean, it's just in his Bruno's hand, the bad guy. And the cop picks it up, he's like, oh, oh well, you're you off. got it. I guess we'll work this out. You have a lot to explain, <laughs> but don't worry. At about 9 nine fifteen, we'll be having pancakes and where's the, shit. Where's the phone? It's just over there. What happened? Oh, he was a crazy guy. 
<laughs> no, 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 no. It's like, <laughs> okay. And like he, no, sorry, a real clever guy. When he, oh, a real clever, real clever guy. When he chokes that old lady, which is the beginning, the beginning of this show. Yeah. He's just, he's like, can I borrow your neck? If it's for, if as long as I get it back, it's like, well, why? Why is he, ch- why is he choking her? Or even better, the like, the professor explaining differential calculus. And then he goes, do you, you get what I'm saying? And the guy says, I do. And he's like, this is the yeah, performance of, you do? <laughs> oh, I had a goat. Well, I love the, I love the, um, the portrait when he like starts laughing and they just like show that horrible, awful portrait. That's just like, that's so It's like a great. demon. He's like, it's dead. And just like that old lady's been painting that thing the whole time. It's great. But it's, it's. But be, that's I great too. That, that's such an introduction to how mean and awful, like yeah. that's how mean and awful Bruno is. And then like he puts on that front side. Like this is such a great like psychopath performance it and is. how charismatic. And god damn it, don't mix alcohol and barbiturates, anybody. Because <laughs> we would have gotten thirty more. I I think he would have been up there with um, Mitchum. He was. I mean, it's just. It, I mean, he's thirty-two. It's kind of amazing. Walker's thirty-two when he does this. By the time he hits his forties. You know? Yeah. No, it's. I mean, it's. 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 It's a different. Mitchum, by the way. It's a different. We'll Hitchcock. talk about him later. <clears throat> it's a different Hitchcock, but it's also. Like you know a movie. A great Hitchcock. Yeah. It's, it's. And even if it's not great, it's great in the sense that like you did not mind spending an hour and forty three minutes watching it. Like even when it doesn't make sense and it's totally implausible and the emotions are all weird, you just kind of like. That's and this is the thing awesome. I've watched. I've watched this movie before with like friends, and like they're like, oh, like like friends who were like, oh, black and white. And like you fucking, you get into but the it. The black and white is so deep. Yeah, it's and deep. It's, it, but it's, it's deep. But like beyond that, it's still funny for like modern. It works for like today. You know, all that's what I love about Hitchcock is like everybody looks at Hitchcock and they'll go like and like they're like oh old movie blah, blah. and it's like then you're like whoa I fucking rocked <laughs> old movie oh he just followed the, that this woman around for seven minutes in total silence and then they're on a shore and he's just like are you Miriam. You know, he's like, been following her around. Yeah, who are? <laughs> <laughs> it's just great. He's so sadistic and but like funny. And even even like just the set design and everything. Like you could tell that that's not Washington D.C. That's a stage, but it has such depth. Just the way you know that Burks composes those shots. The just those stages have such depth of shadow. Mm. We know when. The, the shadows when in this guy movie are sees, very dark. When Guy sees, like, Bruno at his bed and yeah. just a fucking shadow against the wall. To me, that's, like, has, that's like hitting... Like, this movie, and this is... I mean, obviously, it's separated by, like, almost ten years. But, like, some of the stuff this is doing with Shadow kind of almost, in a way, like, equals something that, like, Citizen Kane does with Shadow, mm. to me, at points. And it just shows how much of, like... How in control of his bizarre scene uh, Hitchcock was. Because well, you have to be. And I think... As he carries his double bits. I think Orson Welles is probably trying to say something with the shadows. So no, Hitchcock is Hitchcock just, is just like, let's just... Creating an emotion. It, yeah, it's exactly. It's a brutality. It's a, it's a, it's a brutishness. Exactly. Like, as I always say, like a brutishness. <clears throat> These type of films don't need to say something. They just need to evoke something. And mm-hmm. this evokes that. Well, that's like... I was reading the Roger Ebert great movie essay today about it. And like... You know, something that I found weird watching it most recently was, like, in that beginning conversation 
when Bruno's like laying down having this conversation, I was like, why is he laying down? And like the the weird homoerotic stuff is is on purpose and very present and all this other I stuff. I mean, much less forward than Patricia Highsmith's novel was. Yeah. That's but um very much on the I nose. never read it, so I don't know. Um they It's shocking how he, how on the nose that is at Titans. A lot of touching. He kind A lot of, of touching. He kinda of points out that it's like, he's just so open. He's, like, way too open. He's, like, way too open with this guy. And he makes it, he makes a case, and I'm not even talking in the microphone. He kind of makes a case that, like, oh, he's been, it makes it seem like he's been planning this. But part of me wants to say that, like, maybe he wasn't planning this. Maybe he's just, like, a super fucking weirdo. Part of me thinks he is just a super weirdo. And, like, he's going to just pick this guy out that he recognized. I mean, like, listen, I know that your life is... And, like, he's been carrying around this idea in his head, not specifically that this guy would kill his dad, but, like, I can just get someone to kill my dad. And, like, oh, I'll just get this guy to kill his dad, and then it would just reciprocate because, like, I can kill his wife. Like, he just wants to kill somebody. Somebody's got to die in this guy's world. He's just fucked up. Um, and I think that's, it's... There's no reason to make a, a different case for it, in my view. Like, or try to lay some different kind of thematic value to his personality. He just is fucked up. Yeah. And that's even scarier in a lot of ways than if he was just, you know, a kind of fey weirdo. Like, yeah, he could be a fey weirdo, but he's deeper, it's deeper than than fey weirdo. Yeah. No, he's exactly. just like a, a ruined human. And Walker just, like, carries, like, like it's, it's in there in the film, but Walker just fucking does that so well. Yeah, it's great. It's very fun. Watch it. It's on Netflix. It is on Netflix. Both of these our movies this week were on Netflix. I didn't watch Aviator. I watched Aviator. I didn't realize. I didn't even look up Aviator on Netflix. I watched yeah. it a different way. It's all right. You're forgiven. I mean, I can watch it on Netflix. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a fun like two hours. Yeah. No, it doesn't feel like two hours. And if you like this podcast, you probably should start watching your Hitchcock because there's going to be a decent amount. Of it. I mean, if you're watching the movies, do you think people are following along? No. Like they think. You think? Oh, like, uh, maybe. You think like they like, oh, we should watch these. Like if they haven't seen the movie, they watch it. Like, are we recommending films? You think that'd be crazy? Some poor bastard was just like, oh, I saw that they really had a lot of positive things to say about. It. I saw the devil, and then <laughs> they haven't been out of bed since. No, some some poor bastard is like a bunch of Dan Stephen photos now on his wall. And by poor bastard, I mean great bastard because. <laughs> Some was, guy we want to I know. wish I wish I had the courage to put a bunch of Dan Stevens photos on my wall. You know what? They just don't make poster magazines, I don't think, like they used to. Where you could have a bunch of non-printed teen... out versions of Dan Stevens on your wall. Teen Cosmo needs to come back and just give us Dan Stevens. The Dan me. Stevens issue. Watch Dan Stevens be a listener. I think this is the most like pro Dan Stevens podcast there is. Yeah. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> if you're Dan Stevens, you want <laughs> You want to be, be on the Dan Stevens podcast. <laughs> I mean, Pivotal Film. Um, you can send us a message at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at twitter.com slash filmpivotal. Twitter's used for great things nowadays, huh? Super positive. Only positive yeah, things. Only on positive Twitter. things. Like hugging pictures of sitting congresswomen or tombstones of your opponents. Seriously, this is. I don't know. I just wanted to get this out of here. What the fuck is going on? And I don't know. by what the fuck is going on, I mean, like, I urge people who listen to this podcast, I don't assume there's any conservatives, but if you are, you're obviously open-minded to some sort of extent that you're listening to two very liberal people talking. 
just do some research on the people who run for office and think about like the uh, some of the things they're promoting and some of the things they're pretty okay with. And you know what? If you vote for a libertarian this year, cool. I'm okay with that. If you vote for like a libertarian candidate, but you're a conservative, no, no, you can vote for a libertarian candidate. But if this you're year, if you're a Republican, listen to this podcast yeah. and you vote in the middle because you disagree with some like the social, like you see something like economic ideas, that's fine. But there's definitely an engendered policy standpoint and acceptance of ideas that we need to have a, a clean slate on. Like I say this as a person who's like still a Christian. So, like, I should be super conservative, but no, this is completely a gas to, like, every single belief well, people just, should have. I think, I mean... Who are following any sort of word of God. I'm going to be very honest with you. Everyone jokes about Marianne Williamson all the time. But Marianne Williamson is 100% right when she says it's not, it's really not, a, it's, there's, part of this is, which has nothing to do with policy. Part of this has something to do with the fact that there's been, like, an overall corruption in our our country's moral value system where we value ourselves much more highly than we value literally anybody else that we know yeah. or anybody else that we don't know or anybody else that we could know or anybody else that lives in this country. It literally means nothing to be an American anymore. You know what I mean? Like we are not a, we are no longer a country. We are just a bunch of people that live in a place called the United States of America. It's like Fred um, Thompson's dream. Well, it's, yeah. <laughs> That's what we'll call the episode. Um, the things that our founding fathers were afraid of, you can no longer be afraid of. There's Barack Obama was not. No, trying... there, there's some things well, you can yeah. be afraid of, like centralization, like the centralization of powers under forces who are sure, sure, against sure. But I'm not, uh, everything this country stands for. I'm talking about, I'm talking about for. before 2016. Barack Obama was not trying to be your king. Do you know why the Second Amendment was put in the Constitution to prevent someone trying to be the king? Not like someone like trying to... Like an organized to, militia. If, you guys, not if, if auto, a president tries to be a king and all of us want to form an organized militia to present that, that is a constitutional right. Not, But it's not an autocratic dictator or a fascist leader. It is literally a monarchy-style king. That's what the Second Amendment was put in place to do. That's what a okay, lot of... It be a constitutional law argument made. Meh, but it's, but it's not. But, like, but it isn't. You know what I mean? Like it isn't. Like you could just read all the writings surrounding the Second Amendment, like from the found, from like Thomas Jefferson and all these people, and it literally has to do with the fact that like if George Washington or whoever was going to be the first president decides that he is going to have a son and he's going to prop him well, up to be like a but king. What we can all agree is what it's. We can all stop it. What it's not saying is like we're, if you don't have you know a fully automatic or semi-automatic rifle in your house just because you want to shoot targets. And if the government takes that from you, then obviously they are a dictatorship who is just trying to destroy your First Amendment rights. Not what it's saying. Not what it's saying. And I would argue that it is – we now live in a country where people are incapable of – because of the internet and because of lots of other factors – are incapable of accepting their responsibility for – their own life, but also accepting the responsibility of the people that lived a hundred years ago in how they have shaped the current life of millions and millions and millions and millions of people in this country. You are not, we are all, we at a certain level are all implicit in key or complicit in establishing a system of values in this country that values 
one group of people other than another. And I don't mean black and I don't mean black and white, and I don't mean brown and white. I don't mean like I don't really mean that at all. I just mean that certain people are doing things right and certain people are doing things wrong and the people that are doing things wrong have to pay for it. And if it's two people this weekend decided to kill people because people had to pay. But it isn't even about the killing people. The killing people is just a symptom of like something much more malignant in our society, which is that like they don't get health care because I don't get health care. They don't get health they don't get, you know, to go to a good school because I don't get to go to a good school. I didn't get to do that, so they don't get to do it either. You know what I mean? It's this weird societal narcissism that is really yeah. like is like a tumor. And which think, we just have to fucking eradicate. I think that's the point. The point is 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 realizing it's a systemic problem. Realizing that a lot of people are hurting. You, me, everyone is hurting. Like in the sense of there's things that we are denied. There's like much less us to white males. But I'm not every, denied every, anything. Like that's the no thing. denied sort of thing. Like there, there's 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 systematic things that are preventing everybody in some sure, way yeah, of yeah. getting I guess getting their their just desserts or getting getting their dues sort of thing. And it, it's less a matter of, of thinking about the person next to you who gets some sort of up and, and thinking of why did they get bad and I don't get bad and more realizing that like having an empathetic sort of state of mind of realizing that a lot of people are hurting, a lot of people don't get anything, a lot of people if they're getting this thing that you're not getting, they're getting something else. They're not getting something else that you're getting. You know, we made, I made the joke earlier about Richard Brody, like, doing heroin. That's pretty, you know, antipathetic of me, like, saying that. Like, let's mm-hmm. say for some dumbass reason, Richard Brody listens to this podcast, which way we love you, Richard Brody. That would be awesome. Be I fucking love Richard but Brody. Like, you know, anybody listens to that podcast, like, that could hurt. And that was, like, a shitty thing of me kind of to say, like, empathetically. Mm-hmm. You know, so, like, I guess the point is, like, yeah, we all have shit that, like, is unfair to us and it hurts us and is, like, not right. And instead of just, like, targeting a group of people who get the one thing or who you think are taking that from you, instead be like, whoa, this is actually a problem. And those people also are missing something or, you know, everyone is, is, is lacking something and, and we're all hurting in some way. How do we, you know, not perpetuate the problem how do we fucking do something about it to work together right so that everyone feels like fine like everyone's like okay i don't get everything i want but like hey i feel good because we're an even playing field like let's work towards a fucking even playing field well, and not would, like pe- bullshit people just need to really kind of like wake up and do their do their research like let's just assume that people have a general like you know analytical intelligence and say that like if you live in the Northeast or you live on the West coast or you live like, you know, in the Midwest or something. Let's look at the fact that you, yes, you may not have everything you want to have. And there may be like a stare, there may be a stereotype about like who gets welfare and who doesn't get welfare, who gets services and who doesn't get service. But let's also look at the fact that like perhaps that person's family started four generations ago with literally nothing five generations ago and they still have nothing let's look at the fact that like yes maybe your dad lost his job and now like you have less than he had but that's one generation removed you are still in a position a better position than someone who has been denied like a certain level of legitimate american citizenship for five generations because of a their color and because of their socioeconomic background yeah um 
but also look at the fact that your state and we have actually a bunch of people from different states who listen to this podcast. Let's look into the fact that your state is literally taking stuff from you. If you live in Alabama, your state government has literally spent the whole year taking shit from you. They, have, they not, have focused more their intentions on a woman's right to decide whether or not she wants to conceive than they have on fixing the systemic issues that plague the state right. and lead it to be one of the highest states that depend upon welfare. Mm-hmm. Maybe they should fix the issues that make it so the living population is struggling before they worry about the issues of the potentially in the future living population's rights. Right. And that's and that wonderfully said. And, that's, and regardless of your beliefs, like like you can regard, believe in yeah, abortion yeah. or whatnot, but like realize that like if you want to believe in a child's right to live, you want to truly believe in a child's right to live in a society where they have a fucking chance. Well, it's like, you know, I would say to the guy at Pet Boys that, like, rung me out for my headlight that I just bought, like, on my way over here. Like, don't worry about the fact that, like, you can't have a plastic bag at Stop and Shop anymore. Don't worry about it. Like, you don't need to go on a five-minute tirade about the fact that you now can't offer me a plastic bag for my headlight. I don't need a plastic bag for my headlight. I can carry my headlight out to my car. It's just a headlight. You know what I mean? And worry about the fact that the companies who made the plastic bag have done so with no regard for environmental protection. Have done so in the position that is making the world a worse place for you and your children in the future. There are things, there are legitimate things to worry about. We saw two more of them this weekend. Don't be distracted by what, the party that you've chosen to align yourself with tells you that you need to be distracted by or that you need to worry about or what Fox News tells you you need to worry about because there are legitimate things. You might live and you may have lived in El Paso and thought your biggest fear was the fact that like, I don't know, a brown person might cross the border illegally from one desert into another fucking desert that might have walked from Honduras to the border, crossed it, just to end up in the goddamn fucking but desert. Now, but now you realize there's more pertinent There are real things. Yeah. There are real things. And apparently, according to Donald Trump, it is video games. I mean, we're a movie podcast, and, you know, nine, seven it, years ago... I'm going to be honest. Seven years ago, 52 so or so people went into, like, one of the most highly anticipated movies of the year, Dark Knight Rises, did not live to see that film, did not live to see another day... And we are still at square one. I'm going to be very honest with you. I almost called you today and was like, I don't know if I could do this. Because, well, that's why I wanted to do this, because of this. Right. But I also was just like, well, what's the point? Like, why, but, And I, also, I said to my wife today, I was like, oh, why, but why do anything? Like, I'm also perfectly comfortable just being like, you know, to my kids, like, we're not going to do anything today because what's the point? Like, but, not even because I'm afraid. I'm, not, I'm actually no, it's, not it's afraid. Just, it's, it's because, like, everything seems less significant when like someone can just people have passed kicked the can down the road so many times that anyone that wants a gun can have a gun which means that anyone in a state in an open carry state like texas can just walk into any place with a gun and people just be like all right and then until they start shooting people and like we just refuse to do anything about it and our second most significant leader in the country, we could say the Senate Majority Leader probably is at the second most significant position, decides that it's still okay on his official campaign site to post pictures of tombstones not an hour before, not an hour after the uh, news of the El Paso shooting has happened. It's just... Uh, tombstones of, of three real people. We have to be 
as a country, and I, I, my my general optimism, which has been wrong, you know, before, um, which perhaps will be wrong again, tells me that um, I think people are having conversations. I think people are are saying this is weird. I think the fact that Mike DeWine immediately came out, it was just like, this is not going to solve every problem, but let's move the chains a little bit. Like I'm a Republican governor, let's move the chains a little bit on getting some of these gun controls. Um, getting something in place that will perhaps try to prevent something like this from happening, even I guess as frequently as it does. I mean, is that the best we can hope for? I mean, that bums me the fuck out, and which is a shitty way to say it. Like that actually makes me want to cry. That like all we're hoping for is for there to be half as many mass shootings in America as there is. Would that be a positive? That doesn't sound like a fucking positive to me. That doesn't sound like a positive to me. You know what I mean? And, like, that's one of the things that bums me out about, like, the Democratic debate the other night is that, like, fucking Chris Cuomo, after the debate, was, like, chewing Cory Booker out for saying, like, well, the ACLU spent three years, like, coming down and blah, blah, blah. And then Cory Booker had to say, yeah, we we were tough when it started because Newark's murder rate was, like, the highest yeah, yeah. in the country. And we worked with the ACLU for three years to fix it. Like... That's just how it works. Like, we did it, and we still are doing it, and it's, like, this is still how this stuff happens. People just want things to happen. People just want to say, if you hope it happens enough, and you get rid of all the video games, that this just will just go away. But it doesn't. You, I, have, to, you have to act. People have to act. I'm actually really surprised. I, I, I kind of want to finish on this. Finish, like, yes. Finish on this. Uh, like I said, I'm a Christian. We've done thoughts and prayers for mass shootings for 20 years. We're still here. And sometimes maybe even your thoughts and prayers, if you believe in a God, could be answered by, like, personal action that comes to some people. And then when we don't do that personal action, maybe we're just not taking action. Um, hoping and praying for things to get better and not doing anything hasn't gotten us anywhere. We're, we're worse off than we were 20 years ago in terms of mass shootings and in terms of, of how divided we are as a people. So maybe let's start realizing that the person across from you and the person that you see as an enemy is a human being is is your fellow person let's fucking start doing something about that yep um I guess have, have a good week and do whatever you gotta do and if yeah. it's see if it's if it's see a movie see a movie and if it's drink a beer it's drink a beer and if it's listen to this podcast next week we will be here to talk to you next week I don't know what's going to be different. I don't know what our feelings are going to be, but um, if doing nothing seems weird and, and doing this seems weird, I guess the best thing we can do is just keep on doing it. Keep on, keep on keeping on, as they say. Someone says that. Yeah. Talk to you next week. Yeah.